irrespective. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. So, Anna, it is so good to hear you and and see you. Um, first, um, I know you are the founder of the Good Energy Pro- Project, and I know the sole purpose of the Good Energy Project is to provide everyone a quick daily activity that you can accomplish in 60 seconds or less to increase good energy. So uh, what's your good energy project for, for the day? <laughs> um. <laughs> That actually, that isn't the purpose of the Good Energy Project. But do you want me to? <laughs> oh, okay, no. So, 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 tell me. I, I, I thought that was the purpose. I thought it was. Well, it should. It should be. You should. It, that'd yeah, be actually. It should a, be. It's a great it, idea. It's a great idea. Concept. Yeah. <laughs> we should take it right now. Yeah, yeah. So that needs to be out in the world for sure. Um, but, so, what, first of all, so tell us what's the cover of the Good Energy Project. I know it's around films and culture and all that kind of stuff. But I thought it, I, I thought it had this little sidebar thing of making everybody feel good, which I guess it does too as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely. Um, so the purpose of the Good Energy Project is basically to provide storytelling, climate storytelling support to writers and producers um, in Hollywood around TV and film. And we work with some great partners at Sierra Club and NRDC and the Center for Cultural Power. Um, and so the, you know, it's, it's still kind of in its pilot phase, but we have, we are doing on, ongoing consulting for shows and writers who are working on climate storylines and, um, have also hosted some really amazing events, um, for that audience. Uh, and the idea was like, there's just very few climate stories and TV and film. And as you well know, the power of culture and story to shift people's hearts and minds and imaginations and ultimately actions on climate change is just massive. And it's a, it's an area in the climate movement that aside from your amazing work and a few others has just been really underinvested in. Um, So the idea was to just bring as, you know, easy resources, free consulting services to writers in TV and film um, that helps them, you know, tell great stories on climate. Um, So that's been, that's been a really fun project. In a lot of ways, it's sort of my dream to get more of these stories out there in popular culture. No, that's amazing. That's amazing. So do you have anything that we can do in 60 seconds that can get our good energy up today? Or well, not really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, as you know, it's been kind of a wild couple of weeks. So I've um, really been leaning into a lot of your your great preaching, if you will, around spiritual connection and um, doing a lot of deep meditation and just trying to center myself, a lot of prayer, um, because these are these are wild times, not just in my life, but in everyone's life. So I encourage everyone to take 60 seconds or more and and just uh, get some quiet space or (laughs) quiet space with uh, God, the universe, the mother divine, whatever you um, you call that greater power. Yeah, well, there you go. I got it. I got it. I got one very good advice: meditate and center yourself. Um, but two, uh, Anna says that to help that, definitely go check out Rev Ewer's Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a huge. <laughs> and there you go. I, I, I'll, I'll take. I'll, I'll take it all. 
I also know that you co-host uh, uh, the podcast, which, which I was on, uh, No Place Like Home with Marianne Hitt. Yeah, that's been another um, really big bright spot in my life and activism. You know, the past two seasons, we explored both kind of emotions and climate anxiety and other kind of moving through and processing a lot of these harder emotions that a lot of us feel, grief and fear and loss, and, and instead of kind of burying them, really bringing them to light and, and, and grappling with them and finding um, ways, uh, both spiritual practices and courageous stories and leaders that help us move through all of that. Um, and then our last season, which you were a star in, and one of my favorite episodes oh. was bring the light and that, you know, specifically with looking at spiritual narratives and spiritual practices um, that we can, we can kind of turn to, to gather courage and community and also um, wisdom and, and how we approve, you know, approach and peace, you know, as we're grappling with these really hard issues and we, we, um, we explore everything from your amazing conversation um, to we talk to a witch, we talk to a rabbi, we talk to a, a current evangelical missionary. I mean, we did it because we felt like everyone could use some more of that. But honestly, I, I wonder if me and Marianne benefited the most because it was doing it during COVID was, you know, it was just so important um, to, re to revisit the spiritual elements of all this. Yeah, no, that's so cool. I got to tell you a fun fact. So fun fact is that, well, did, did you know that Marianne does karaoke? I knew she sang. I don't know that I knew she did karaoke. Yeah. So we were hanging out uh, actually uh, on the podcast, the coolest show right here. And, you know, she went to high school. Well, she went to the high school that Dolly, Party, that Dolly Parton went to, right? So we, 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 we didn't get a band, but we actually... Uh, we, we started singing nine to five together. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, I'm not going to sing for you because that would not be as pleasant. No, no. And, and, and my part wasn't that good either. She, 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 she definitely carried it. So I will say that officially. No, no, 100%. No, you got to give credit where credit is due. She, she 100% carried it. We talking about 100% renewable. She 100% carried it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's an she, amazing. Yeah, no, nah, it was great. Her. Yeah, she's yeah. No, nah, she is. Amazing activist, too. Uh, yes. Yeah. Activist Marianne here. But um, so, yeah, shout out to Marianne, your, your co-host. But for folks who don't know you, before we get to the story and other stories, we kind of go a little bit of background into what you do. Who is, in your opinion, um, not just in your bio, who is Anna Jane Joyner? Oh, the great question that not very many people ask. So thank you, first of all, for starting with the human part. Um, I would say I'm a seeker. I think that um, I, I've been drawn to a really healing, you know, like trying to heal this hurting world since I was in college and first kind of became aware of all of the issues around climate and justice. Um, so I think that kind of underpins a lot of my, my work is this desire for uh, global healing and earth healing, but also collective healing um, for for all the hurt that is happening in our world and, and hurt inside of me. As I'm sure we'll talk about, we have, I have um, some stressful elements of my life that have been there, but we all do, you know, our stories are, are different, but they're, especially right now, it's 
um, a challenging world to be a human in. So I'm just kind of on this journey to do the most I can to impact, you know, the climate crisis and all the intersectional justice related issues, but also do it from a place of not fear or anxiety, which I think is very natural to feel those things, but really um, coming back to the original reason that I started this, which is is definitely a love for this life and this world. Uh, thank you. Um, let's get to some of that anxiety. And um, before I get to that, I, I really want to be mindful because um, my my focus and my concern is is you. Um, um, to be one hundred percent honest, um, we're going to talk about your father, um, Rick Joyner, because it's the article that came out in the New York Times. And for those who don't know, an article came out in the New York Times, um, and the article was was written by Nicholas Kristof. Um, and the article is titled, He's a Famous Evangelical Preacher, but his kids wish he'd piped down. And it, it goes on to read as, 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 as follows. The Reverend Rick Joyner has called on Christians to arm themselves for civil war, but his children would be on the other side. And then the first two paragraphs of the article read, uh, quote, uh, the Reverend Rick Joyner is a famous evangelical leader who has called on Christians to arm themselves for an inevitable civil war against liberals who he suggests are allies of the devil. But this is the awkward part. His five children would be on the other side of that civil war as he and his kids all acknowledge. Just as America is torn asunder by politics and polarization, so is the Joyner family. The Joyners love each other are there for each other and despair for each other, end quote. Um, so um, in your opinion, I guess it's on the same question. Anna, who, who is your father? Yeah, he um, he has been for the past 40 years, a kind of, uh, not a kind of, a author and a preacher and what many would refer to as a prophet um, within the kind of charismatic evangelical tradition. And he's, uh, he's very well known in, in many of those circles. Um, so he's always been that. He was that before I was born. That's what I was born into, that environment, um, which is pretty tumultuous environment to raise children in. But ever since you know, as for as long as I can remember, probably even before I was born, he's been talking about the end times and this kind of grand spiritual battle between good versus evil. Um, and I, so that, that battle language was um, present growing up. Um, but what seems to be new to me within the probably past, most recently year or two, but even within the past five or 10 years is this emphasis on a real civil war <laughs> with actual violence um, it, here it, on, on this earth in this realm, and he's kind of extending that spiritual battle of good versus evil to to actual violence and civil war here, which is uh, obviously in, incredibly dangerous. And he's also become 
you know, within a part of that, you know, he, he has become more racist in a lot of the narratives that he, that he speaks to, even though he wouldn't say he's a racist. You know, he, he talks about the hordes of hell coming out of the Southern border, which of course evokes imagery of people of color. Um, and then you, you know, also he called Black Lives Matter, the KKK of our time. And, you know, even though he wouldn't see this way, what he's doing through his rhetoric is he's galvanizing and othering uh, not just liberals, but people of color in particular, which is just so dangerous and damaging. And I think you can draw a, a pretty straight line to that kind of story and what happened on January 6th and um, all these large, you know, racist um, sort of insurrectionists trying to take over our government <laughs> and our Capitol building. And I'm really worried that his, uh, as he continues to use this language and, and with his millions of followers that, you know, people within that community could uh, pick up weapons. He's encouraging his followers to arm themselves um, and, and commit more violence. And, and that's why I, I've i spoken out about my father's racist rhetoric, his uh, climate denial in the past, but this just felt like a moment where we really had to draw a pretty public line in the sand. And my brothers and sisters were, um, you know, also very um, worried about his increasingly abhorrent language. And so they, they joined me in that conversation and, and that's how we ended up with the article. And mm. I think the other thing about the article is that it is in a lot of ways, a microcosm. Our family is a microcosm for what's happening to millions of families. Um, as our parents' generation have become more, um, politicized and, and racist and, um, you know, succumbing to these horrible, conspiracy theories around election fraud and QAnon and any number of others. So it, it feels like a scary moment, but at his heart, I mean, I don't, I, I, as a father, I should say, you know, I struggle with like what it's like, what do you do with the art of monstrous men? It's kind of the, the like, um, but it's, you know, he has been a, a good father, not in every way, but in a lot of ways. And he's still quite, can be quite caring and loving and generous to us on a personal level. But, you know, I, I'm sure there were Nazis who were great fathers. And so it's like, a, you know, a, regardless, it, it makes our personal relationship really difficult because we don't want to hurt him because he's our dad and and he can be very loving and supportive. Um, but at the same time, he is uh, he's he's perpetuating stories that can result in real violence and harm. And and that's a really hard thing to know how to navigate. No. Well, first, I just want to thank you for your transparency. And, I'm, and my, my goal here is that this conversation will help many people. As you have already seen, there are many people who are like you and who are dealing with this moment of parents who have, um, who are saying things that are very disastrous. And so I come to you really um, as both um, someone who is with you in the movement, obviously on the climate, and as a as a friend, and so I just I want to, but I'm also a person who used to be a chaplain uh, in the Air Force, and I'm also someone who is a black man, and so you know when I hear your father um, and how he has called on white evangelicals to arm themselves. Um, you know, and I hear a call to lynch black people and people of color and a call to instigate violence toward me. Um, 
and my family. So I'd like to know, is that what you hear when he calls on his followers to prepare and arm themselves for civil war? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that's how he would say it, but that's what I hear. And also, I think what the very real repercussions of his words are, you know, like, I think that's where you can you can take the story that he's telling and and you can make a direct line to that, you know, because a lot of his underpinning rhetoric is racist and it, it and I'm unfortunately, that's exactly what I'm worried about is that it results in, in real violence towards, you know, people of color. And um, yeah, I think it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And I wish he could see that as well. Hmm. So given that, and I know you struggle with how to manage relationship with your father, but, um, and this is an analogy for our larger climate movement, actually. At what point do you stop trying to persuade, stop trying to be in relation and focus on protecting the lives of the people whose actions are threatening? Yeah, it's a really good question. And and I I I do still spend a modicum of um of energy and time trying to persuade him just, you know, out of a personal duty, because I want to believe that everyone can change and he does have power. So if he changed, it, it could have, um, propound, you know, it could, it could have profound repercussions. Um, but honestly, I think I moved a long time ago or I acknowledged a long time ago that my dad is probably never going to change. Um, if anything, he has a tendency to, to dig in a little further. Um, although I do think that this, this piece did cause him to reflect a lot more than, um, anything else I've seen recently, which is a very hard thing to get my dad to do. But I, I think the, 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 the justice movement and, um, and even the strategic, you know, necessity isn't to try to persuade my dad or people like him. I, I think that they're pretty lost. I hate to say it that way. Um, I think it's to, to really focus on, on supporting people of color and communities who are at most, you know, harm and risk. And, and that's really where we have to put the bulk of our energy and our time. Um, even though arguing with our crazy parents can be quite seductive and maddening, it's, it's in a lot of ways, a waste of time that we could be using helping, helping people. And um, yeah, I, I think I'm kind of, in some ways I sort of, I sort of hope that was the last extended amount of emotional energy and time I have to spend on addressing my dad's shit, but you know, it's not unlikely to happen again. And I, I really do, um, you know, try to spend the bulk of my energy on, on working on real, you know, climate justice, um, efforts. I think that's where we have, and also, you know, the voting rights, you know, it's also intertwined, but what we're seeing in our country is, is just really scary and important. And it does, you know, it does bring back these really, I live in the South, you know, like the, the Jim Crow's, you know, it's just, there's all kinds of really important fights on our hands at this moment. <laughs> and I think it's, our energy is better spent focusing on those than trying to convince crazy conspiracy theorists. No, no, I, 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 I again, thank you so much. And as you're talking, I'm, 
I'm thinking about, and maybe this might be helpful for those who are listening, because I think that, to be honest, Anna, I actually think that you are one of the big keys. You're what you're going through is actually one of the keys to success for the climate movement. And, I, and, I, and I'll get to that in a second. So I think that you're actually very, very important. What you're going through, the struggles you're going through, the angst, the pain that you and your siblings are going through can actually be a breakthrough. So, but, but sometimes there's a, there's, a, there's a test, as we say, before the testimony. Um, before we get to that part of the conversation, um, knowing now what you know, why do you think this, this type of Christianity is clearly intertwined with white supremacy? Explain, because you're nodding your head to me, explain that to those listening right now. Yeah, I mean, you can track that all the way back to you know the, the actual civil war when white pastors in the South used biblical narratives to justify slavery and oppression and during you know the Jim Crow era, they did the same thing. Like I, my family, a big part of my family is from Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is of course uh, notorious for the Mississippi burning murders, where um, three three young men who who one was a black man from Meridian, which is nearby. Two others were from the north who came down to register black people to vote, and um, they were murdered brutally by like seventeen people in the community some of which I could be related to. I've been trying to actually research that, but certainly the entire town knew who these men were. And they, there was like three white people who actually stood up and said something and did something. And none of those were my family members. So that's a really horrible legacy to have to wrestle with. But the point I wanted to make is that the largest white church in, in the town was a, a Baptist church, a Southern Baptist church. And after that happened, the pastor got up and said, basically, these men have what they were coming to them. And if, if others come back, they're going to get the same thing. He said that from the pulpit. Um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. did a, a march there a year or two after this happened, and he called it the most evil place he'd ever set ground on. Um, so you can you can trace, of course, the Bible has been used by Black churches and, and lots of um beautiful progressive ways to to fight for for justice but it's also like I Wendell Berry I think said it's a fiddle that many songs can be played on and it has definitely historically been used for oppression and violence and racism as well and you can track that even back to you know a, a lot of the, the inquisition and the the you know you know killing millions of Muslims um and and it's you know it's just been a, a using religion to other and oppressed people to hold on to your power to extend your power has been something that has unfortunately been done for you know throughout history and i think that we're just seeing this as you know our our country's demographics and politics are changing um, and we're starting to really wrestle with um important social change that is needed to happen and we're seeing, you know, you know, we haven't had a Republican popular vote since I think it's been over 20 years. And so these people in the GOP are, are afraid of losing power and they're clinging to it. And a, a really um, common way for people to justify clinging to power is to other and oppress others, often, most often people of color. And so I think we're just seeing this new uh, iteration of that, which is, you know, obviously terrible and horrible and dangerous. Um, and, and even in this modern moment, that's scary. 
That's very scary. Um, as you mentioned the history, there were there were slave ships that were called John the Baptist, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, there were ministers who blessed the cargo um, of that. So, um, and then you you brought up the murders in Philadelphia, Mississippi, and of the voting rights the voting rights activists and. You mentioned that some of those who had could have killed them could have been family to you. That's a that's a that's a wild legacy, actually. Um, how do you deal with that? Yeah, um, it is. And then the, the other half, my grandmother's family is from Philadelphia. And my grandfather's family is from Selma, and he has a very similar story there. Like we were not on the right. But I had family who were in Selma during Bloody Sunday, and and that whole era and they were not on the right side of history. I honestly, mm. I come from a, a family of, of cowards and oppressors. And um, that is a hard legacy to grapple with. And I think it has brought a lot of shame and anxiety to me. And, you know, since I've always known inklings of this, um, but since moving to the South about five years ago to Alabama, I've, re- I've gone to these places, I've done research, I've interviewed, you know, cousins to try to get a sense of, of what our family legacy is and, and it is truly grotesque and it, and it is something, you know, I don't have a pride in, in, in the people that I come from and, um, and it brings a lot of shame and anxiety and I think it's easy to get stuck there, but I, I really like what Brene Brown has to say about this. Like shame just kind of holds you in this, in this place of I am bad, but guilt can actually be quite productive because it's not, um, I am bad. It's that my family did evil things, but I can use this. I can change it. I can make a positive difference. I can turn, you know, I can do something positive to change this horrible story that I'm a part of. And so that's really what I've, I've been, you know, trying to turn towards is not just getting stuck in, stuck in the shame and, and all the anxiety that brings, but really trying to use my voice and my story now and my work now to, to be a pos- you know, to do something positive and to try to overcome these really oppressive stories and systems. No, and that's what we want to get to. And that's, that's what we, we have to get to, which I think is again, um, but this is part of the test and, and we don't want to, we don't, we don't want to gloss over it because glossing over it would gloss over the pain and the terror um, that was there. And just so we will look back, the people that we're talking about were the murders of Cheney, Goodman and Schwerner. Um, they were the murders which, during Freedom Freedom Summer uh, murders in Mississippi, um, who was killed that Anna's talking about in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Um, let's talk a little bit about climate. Um, um, I'm assuming with all of this, your your dad ain't too much in favor of uh, of the climate crisis as we describe it. <laughs> no, he's a straight up climate denier. He has called it a communist. Marxist host hoax. Um, yep, <laughs> that's, that's right. where he stands on that, which is shitty, you know, to have your dad call your life's work a communist hoax. But nothing. yeah, well, also on top of that, I mean, I guess for me, as you know, because I'm also from the South, as you know, I'm from I'm from Louisiana, so I know all the history you're talking about and have and have lived that um, history. And more recently, have seen people die. So again, this is not um, the folks who were during Katrina 
who literally drowned and were left behind, um, or, the, or even more recently, the 11-year-old girl who froze to death in Texas. Um, you know, it's, this is real. Like, this is when, when you hear that, and then you hear that coax and, and religion, it's, it's tough. Um, so I guess my question to you is that what should the climate movement do to start protecting the lives of people of color that both far-right extremism and the climate crisis threaten? What does it look like for our movement to actually protect Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian American lives? Yeah, I, I think two things um, come to mind. Um, one is we have to we have to better resource black leaders on the front lines in in the south, which you know, as you're well aware is um, we're experiencing some of the worst impacts in the United States, but we also have some of the highest pollution levels, which are a lot of of the fossil fuel infrastructure is located in black and brown communities in Louisiana and across the south. Um, so we have to you know we have to do a better job of of fighting. A lot, you know, of, of resourcing this fight in the South, both for resilience and and um, helping the most vulnerable communities that are overwhelmingly Black and Brown communities deal with the climate impacts we've already set into motion. The horrifying storms that are only getting worse, um, the the flooding, the po the pollution, um, even the weird. Climate, you know, we had a really bad freeze here in Alabama, you know, as, along with that, even these weird climate uh, impacts that are that are devastating, they they kill people. Um, so resourcing communities on the front lines and really um, turning to the leadership of, of black and brown people on the ground for um you know, and supporting these groups, which we, we've done, the climate movement has historically done a really bad job of doing, you know, it's, um, in some ways, it's been typical of other, you know, kind of white supremacist systems in the United States, where it was a lot of wealthy white people coming and telling uh, communities of color what to do, and, and holding on to a lot of the funding. And so that all has to change. And I know a lot of that has started changing. And there's some great organizations that are that are shifting how they fund um, climate efforts and and really moving towards equity and racial justice and I think that's good but we need a lot more of it and then I, I think the other one which is um, which is where you know I think we share a, a deep passion is we have to start really changing these stories in our culture, you know, um, these white supremacist stories that allow for othering and oppression, both overtly and by neglect, by not telling the real story. And I think we do that through TV and film, through radio shows, through religion, through preaching. I mean, all religion is, is, is a group of stories. And um, I think that I don't, you know, I don't think that data in fact changes policy or changes action or changes hearts. I think it really is the stories that we tell and the art that we make. And um, that's a lot of what I'm trying to do through Good Energy and through the podcast. I know it's a lot of the work that you've got to do, but we really have to invest. Um, we have to in really invest in, in, in what that looks like and the, and the mediums that we do that and, and 
and that has also been a very underfunded effort in the in the climate movement and beyond. You know, we don't fund storytelling and arts and communications, and all of that underpins you know, the policy and the fundraising and where people want to spend their money. And, and so we really have to start looking more at that because that is a a root problem of all of this. And that includes being honest about the story of this country and the fact that we were founded on, on racism and oppression and, you know, the genocide of indigenous people and black people. And, and we have to really tell that story and see that story, um, you know, I don't want to say before we can move forward because we have to move forward, but as we move forward. So one of the things in the story, in the article, um, that struck me, and we're talking a lot about white supremacy, but one of the things, um, honestly, and it was around privilege, actually, and and I don't, I don't know if this was meant to be. I don't know how you felt about this, but the um, the author kind of made it seem like there's this kind of thing where you and your siblings don't appreciate what your father is saying. Um, would even would be on the other side of the Civil War if it, if that was to take place. But there was also this kind of thing where it seemed like, and I mentioned when you went to New Zealand. Um, that first person you called was your father um, when you had to get through college to pay for UNC. First person who paid for that was, who resumed paying that, I guess, was your father. And then after, even when you went through a climate crisis yourself in Alabama, which um, I'm intimately, because obviously we follow each other on, on Twitter, and I was praying for you. First person you called was your father. Um, so it seems like while there is white supremacy, there's a there's still a closeness to privilege that's also somewhat troubling. I, it just seems like there's a there's a way where it's almost where yes, I know what this person is doing, but there's an escape hatch, so to speak, and then it's coaxed in family. And so, is that was that did the author get it right or? There's something you want to add to that part of the story. I think he did get it right. I, I think it's um, it's a reality of my story is I come from a very privileged place and my dad, and that's largely because of my father and even beyond that because of um, not just the privilege of my family, but the active oppressions, uh, oppression of other to gain that privilege to the active oppression of people of color to gain that privilege. And it is something that I have, that I've, um, that I have benefited from in my life and my activism. You know, even my first internship with the climate movement was my dad paid for it. And, And so I have a lot of very conflicted emotions. So with Hurricane Sally more recently, I live I live on the the Gulf Coast and I just think about the fact that um my family has the means to evacuate to rebuild if we if we wanted to or we chose to or needed to or to move and so many of my neighbors largely people of color don't have those means like literally don't have a car to to physically evacuate in a lot of circumstances and and so 
I'm not, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not sure what to do about that. Um, other than try to use my work and my voice to, to get more resources to these communities. I think the, the, uh, I think that I have a responsibility as a, as a, uh, as the reality of, of the privilege that I've experienced and continue to experience to do everything I can in my life to, to try to give to, to the people who haven't experienced, you know, who haven't, haven't come from that kind of privilege. And with my dad, it's, it's very conflicting and dark. Um, because at the end of the day, I think part of that urge to call my dad, you know, when I've gone through a sailing accident or a really scary hurricane experience is just wanting my father to take care of me, you know, like just wanting that basic fatherly sense of protection. And I think a, a lot of ways I don't feel that from him because of how dangerous his climate politics are, his, you know, his politics are in general. And so I think sometimes in really vulnerable moments, I still crave that, but there is a lot of, um, a lot of conflict there. And, and I don't know, I don't really think it's a very good thing that I, that I still emotionally go there. I think, uh, I can't, I can't look to my father for protection any more than the people that he is harming can, you know? So I want to share with you a story. Um, I, I don't share this story too often. I have shared it, you know, a little bit, but I don't share it too often. Um, you know, I have a unique relationship in the climate movement. As you know, I'm originally, I was born in Louisiana, but both my parents are actually from Trinidad. Um, they came here uh, to this country to go to school. Um, and so what I don't tell people, though, is that my dad did very well. He had, he, him and my mom both got their PhDs. So I grew up in a very middle-class family. One of the things I realized in the climate movement, they look at you and they immediately put you, okay, you're black, so you must have struggled all your life. And I just, sometimes I don't, I don't go against that. So I just listen, I, I let them think, I let, I let their bias be what their bias is going to be. So I just, whatever. What also they don't know, and this, and this is just to share with you, because I, I mean, you and I are very similar. My dad had never called for arms to kill, the, to go up and kill people like that. Um, but um, in a very real way, the company he worked for was killing people. So my dad actually went back to Trinidad and was working in the oil industry and became a really big oil executive. So there you go. That's a little bit of insight. And he worked for a company called Trintoc, which was the oil company in Trinidad. And he became very well on that process. And I, being a climate activist, confronted my dad. And we didn't speak for years. And we wouldn't have spoken for years until he divested. Because I knew that if we are reliant on fossil fuels and we don't go to clean energy, then the same thing that he's making money from is killing people um, and killing people that look, not, not just black people, but everybody. It's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to kill our planet. And so there's no way. So I, I feel you, and that's my dad. And so I feel you in the, 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 the way you want to respond. You want to talk to your dad. But I, so I went through that. I, I literally went through that. But I also, to be honest, made a decision that um, what he was doing with the oil company and this and what he was doing was something that I could not be a part of. And that's where our lives together came to an end. And 
Until then, he literally, because of that, and he eventually, not too long ago, uh, that was part of the divest campaign, he divested. We have begun to kind of talk. Still, we don't talk. I mean, it's it's never probably going to be because it was it was a hard break. It was literally. So I just wonder for you and your siblings, are you somewhat codependent an aspect? Are you, because of that, kind of, and I know, I know you mentioned your mom was kind of in the middle in the article and in that process. Do, do you think, and it seemed like he, your father, it, do you think a, a cold break may have, would help or no? Or, or for you, I just, I actually, and again, I'm, to be honest, I'm not as concerned about your father that I'm concerned about you. And that, you know, this one of these very, and because and, and, I, I value your work for our movement. So for you, um, in your spirit, would it, would, would it, I mean, when do you say, hey, my safety net, my privilege is not enough for future generations? Yeah, um, I think, I think it's, um, sorry, I want to really reflect on this because it's so yeah. important and it's such an important part of my life right now. And I, I really, that, thank you, first of all, for sharing that I, hard story because I know how difficult it can be to navigate these these kind of toxic parental relationships. Um, my family is really, really close and it's something that we've always really valued. And I think that's mostly more so between me and my siblings and my mother, because in a lot of ways, my dad has always prioritized the ministry more than us. Um, but I, there have been periods where we didn't talk for sure. Um, but I, I do think that I, I'm getting to a place where that is, it's kind of organically sort of gotten there. Like we don't really call each other, but it hasn't been this, this hard break. Um, but I think I'm, I'm, unfortunately, I think that's a, a big reality I'm facing. Like, I don't know how you can in good faith stay in relationship with people who are, who are doing this kind of um, harm to the world and to real people. And I feel angry that he's, he's sort of forcing my hand in that way. But I, I think it's, you know, it's at some point you just have to make a choice on who you stand by. And that even comes to family, you know, in family relationships. And I, and I'll admit firsthand that a lot of it is, I, is, a fear of not having my dad's support both on an emotional level and, and sometimes even on a financial level. I mean, activists don't make a lot of money. There's been plenty of times when I went to my parents um, for help because I needed to pay my bills. <laughs> and I've thought a lot about the fact that many activists, especially on the front lines, especially people of color, just don't have that safety net. And um, how just is it for me to use it when I know those resources are coming from harming other people? Um, so yeah, and it is, you know, obviously my, my father's place in this world, his work in this world causes me a lot of spiritual, um, not just angst, but like profound grief and anxiety. And so I have found that the more that I, you know, put space and distance there and, and speak my truth and my voice and spend my energy and um, time, you know, really doing what I can to help um, the healthier, the healthier I am. And I think the health, the healthier, I think it's probably the healthier choice for, for not just my life, but the world too. Um, Cause I do think that unfortunately we are at a place where we do, you know, we do have to make these really difficult choices. As you reflect on that, then I have to ask this question. Um, 
then who is a bigger barrier to getting to real solutions on the climate crisis in this country? Folks like your father and his believers or white progressives and climate leaders who are fighting to keep their efforts centered in whiteness and privilege? Because both forms of white supremacy and privilege and both groups have a lot of power and resources. Yeah, it's interesting. I was doing some writing, reflecting on all of this. That's one of the ways that I process a lot of these harder moments and, and emotions. And it occurred to me, and I don't know, I don't know if I can articulate this well, um, but like a lot of my dad's, what motivates him is a fear of loss of power and, and change and this kind of idealized version of the past that isn't true. Um, and in some ways that's the same thing. Those are things that have motivated me, right? Like it's a fear of my, my loss of my place in the world, which is underpinned by a great deal of privilege, a fear of loss, you know, a fear of change and a, a fear of, um, you know, of this imagined history where I had power and freedom or not imagined it was a real history, but it was a wrong, you know, it's a wrong history. And and so I, I have had to ask myself really hard questions about my own motivations, you know, and, and and how they're in some ways connected, just like a lot of progressive white people in the climate movement to these harmful, I mean, devastating, evil systems of white supremacy and stories of white supremacy. And I I don't know that it's um it's an either or, you know, I I, I think that obviously it, historically white evangelicals have hold, held a great deal of, of political power. And so these, these white supremacist narratives, these climate denial narratives that are all very intertwined have, have been a big hurdle to making progress on, on climate change. But also it, I think that the, I don't think that the climate movement would have been able to initiate a just transition to tackling climate the climate crisis with you know 10 years ago um or because they weren't they weren't overcoming these systems of white supremacy and these stories and and now you see them or i shouldn't say them because i'm a part of this i think you see us trying to do better and and failing in a lot of ways but at least there's more focus and attention and um and over but i think they're both profoundly destructive and profoundly need to go you know there are two systems that are in some ways a part of the same coin no thank you for that and you know this is what i meant earlier but i believe that you can hold the key in a lot of these different in in this conversation um and why thank you because i uh, going through this test you're going through can lead to hopefully a testimony and, and lead to a lot of things. Because, you know, frankly, I, I do believe one of our biggest problems is, is that white progressives and climate leaders are keeping their efforts centered in whiteness. And what I mean by that is that those who insist on looking at climate as a purely scientific problem and not a social problem. And those who find themselves working aside, working alongside mostly other white people, those who define climate expertise being white scientists and those who define climate solutions as answers from white technocrats and those who reduce the presence of people of color 
in their spears to pointing out that people of color are first and worst impacted by the crisis and nothing more. Um, and so I think that you are in a position where if you can talk about how you can break away, in essence, from this whiteness, how you can break away from white supremacy, that can be a huge benefit to our movement in this process. Do you think you can break away, Anna? I'm, I, yes, yes, I, I do. Um, because I think we have to, <laughs> like, and, you know, we have <laughs> to, it's our only option. And, uh, and I, and I want, you know, I want to, I want to overcome these systems and stories of oppression, not only in the world, but inside of me. Um, so yes, I, I do believe it's possible. And I know that I have a great deal of responsibility to do so. Um, and I, I don't know like how to say this or if it's appropriate, but I just, I want to say that I'm, I'm profoundly sorry um, to you and, and African-Americans in this country and people of color in this country in general for all of the incredible harm that not only my father, but my ancestors and even myself and other white progressives in the climate movement have done. Um, it is it is evil and it has to be changed. And I just I'm committed to figuring out how to change it in my life, in my work, in our world. And I just I I know that actions are far more important than words, but I am I am sorry that I, I have been a part of this and it's wrong. And um and we have to do something about it. I have to do something about it. Let's speak about your work. What, what, do you, what do you have on, on the Piper right now? What's, what's going on as far as uh, some of the work you're doing to help bring awareness to this crisis? Yeah, um, I'm, I, so I'm with Good Energy, um, with the project that, that supports climate stories in TV and film, certainly um, it is incredibly critical that it's not just climate stories, but it's climate stories that acknowledge the white supremacist um, and, and racial underpinnings of this process and, and, and approach it from a, an intersectional way and acknowledge all the ways that this intersects in both our emotional lives, but also in our real life, our world. Um, so I think working with the Center for Cultural Power um, and also NRDC and Sierra Club to really elevate the the story, you know, those stories and also elevate the storytellers, you know, so that it's not Hollywood is as white as any other industry. And, and it's, you know, going through um, what I hope is a, is a shift that will, will change who the storytellers are, because I'm, I love storytelling, but I'm oftentimes not the right storyteller. Um, and so I think that's a big, big thing that I'm grappling with and thinking about and trying to figure out how to how to change it and how uh, we help support, you know, better stories in, in, in Hollywood and TV and film. And, um, and then I'm really, you know, I've been down in the South five years and it's, and I, I was born in Mississippi. I grew up in, in the Blue Ridge mountains and I spent a lot of summers down here at my grandparents' house in Alabama. So it's always been a part of me, but the past five years, I really have been trying and trying to figure out what my role is here in this region that is so is so struggling and 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 so you know oppressive still and so looking at at ways that my work can really help bring resources and focus to you know people of color in 
in Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana who are on the front lines of so many of these fights has been something I've been, I've been really trying to prioritize in my life and and working on, on thinking through what that actually looks like. Um, and would welcome suggestions or others who are interested in, in the South in particular. Um, and then I think the other, the other big piece is, is working, you know, being in the South, working on, you know, we just saw this horribly racist, um, new law in Georgia passed a voter suppression law, like just using my voice as a citizen and, and my citizen power here to, to confront the white supremacist systems and politics that are still so prevalent. Um, doing a lot of deep writing and reflection. I mean, there was an excellent article that just came out about how climate anxiety is largely a, a, a white privilege problem. <laughs> and, um, and I've, you know, I've struggled with a lot of mental health issues largely a legacy of my my family <laughs> them. um and, and but not just that the fact that we're living in a really complicated scary world and um so i'm i'm really trying to to explore in my own writing um you know the intersections of, of white supremacy and mental health and how we both support uh, like there is another i i think that um Harry and, and Megan did such a really interesting and powerful job elevating mental health conversations in this country, in particular, mental in, health impacts and how they intersect intersect with racism and, and the direct racism that Megan has supported. And there's an incredible organization that I'm blanking on, but they fund mental health support for Black women. And, and so really just looking at how do we better support you know, activists who are people of color with mental health support and also as white people, how we confront our own anxieties uh, and, and, and grief and depression and despair that we feel about the climate crisis, but do it in a way that uh, acknowledges that a lot of a lot of the anxiety we feel is related to privilege and white supremacy. And, and so there's, yeah, so I'm, that's kind of a lot of the writing that I'm doing that I, I don't know if I'll publish it or not. It's part of it is just, you know, for me to get a better sense of what's going on in, inside myself. Um, but yeah, those are, those are the big pieces I've been, big things I've been wrestling with. No. And if folks want to get in contact with you, I know you, I saw you had like a little Facebook for, other folks who are struggling with this, I mean, what are those ways to to either be a part of that Facebook community or to reach out to you? Yeah, so Twitter um, is kind of where I'm pretty active along with you. I, I'm so grateful um, for your for your Twitter presence and support and, and outside of Twitter, obviously, as well. Um, but at Anna Jane Joyner, um, it's me on Twitter. And then I do have a a Facebook group for um, preachers, kids, and peeps whose parents are Trump lovers and conspiracy theorists. So, and that's, you know, we, it, it is a lot of ex-evangelicals, um, but it's also, we have um, Catholics and Muslims. We have uh, people who don't subscribe to any faith, but basically if you find yourself in a position like I do where your parents are crazy Trumpies and you need a community of support for figuring out how to navigate that, um, just ping me on Twitter and I can send you the link. You can also search it on Facebook, but probably just ping me directly is the easiest way. And then no place like home podcast.com um, is where we have all of our great podcast episodes, including the incredible conversation we have with you. 
That is Anna Jane Joyner. She is the founder of the Good Energy Project. She is an amazing climate communicator and is passionate about crafting stories and strategies that inspire new and non-traditional audiences to take action on climate. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.